I'm Alex Marlowe, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. On today's show, we start with the news that former President Trump has endorsed Dr. Oz for Senate in Pennsylvania. Seems clear that Oz isn't really a conservative or has been lying on television for the last couple of decades. But maybe Trump sees something we don't. Next, Elon Musk will not be on the Twitter board after all. This is a big victory for the woke millennials who work at Twitter and use Twitter. But it does dash some hope that the social media platform will scale back some of its rampant censorship. Speaking of, the Silicon Valley totalitarians seem to celebrate the news by, what else, banning some more people. We also touch on immigration and crime and the trans hysteria from over the weekend, plus some inevitable roasting of Big Joey the Biden. Our first guest today is London Bureau Chief Oliver Lane, who reports on the massive gas shortages in the UK, thanks Putin, and breaks down the first ballot of the French presidential election. Emmanuel Macron versus Marine Le Pen. The runoff is in two weeks, and we give you the details. Then, world-renowned playwright David Mamet joins us to talk lockdowns, religion, art, the failings of liberalism, and so much more, including his new book of essays, Recessional. He's one of the most important conservative thinkers in the world, so you won't want to miss that. But first, a word from our sponsors. going to do something I haven't done in a while, but I, I want to do it more and I'm going to start now. And I'm going to start with a with a question. And the, the question is specifically for those of you who are ride or die Donald Trump fans, um, because I think there is a pretty big tectonic shift in the political climate over the weekend. I think some of you already know where I'm going to go. Uh, but for those of you who don't know, uh, Donald Trump endorsed Dr. Oz for Senate in Pennsylvania. Now, this is not a those of you who uh, are from another planet. This is not a fictional thing. We're talking about a real thing. The TV Dr. Oz, who I did not know was a conservative or a Republican. I did not know he was Pennsylvanian. All of a sudden, he is now running for Pennsylvania in a kind of an odd race where there is a front runner named Sean Parnell, who's veteran, who dropped out due to some personal issues, it appears. And then there's not really an amazing candidate a leftover. Um, there is a lot of favorable press for a guy named David McCormick, who's a Wall Street guy, who does say all the right stuff. He really does. But his background is sort of more of a Wall Street globalist type. So it, though I have to say, everything he says sounds great, but it is not a natural for those of you who are anti-establishment type people, as is most of this audience. Maybe there's a reason why you're skeptical. I get that. Um, but were you surprised that Donald Trump endorsed Dr. Oz. And do you understand it? Now, I think I understand it. It seems like the people who like Dr. Oz are as follows. Sean Hannity, uh, who is a friend of Dr. Oz for many years and is Trump's favorite broadcaster. Uh, casino mogul Steve Wynn, who is connected to Karl Rove and the Republican establishment and is a big money guy and is surrounds himself with smart people, granted not the anti-establishment type people on the Republican side, and Melania Trump, who I think is socially friends with Oz and the Oz family. It seems like that's it. So I, I understand that. Friends are into him. But when you look at his viewpoints across the board, it's very hard to feel comfortable with him as a candidate, especially with a full-on endorsement. Let me give you a few factoids about Oz's background. For the first part, he is a, a, a Turkish citizen. 
and has said Islam is a religion, but it's also a law. And he's the proud son of Turkey, and he did his military service in Turkey. He's also not going to, he's going to retain his Turkish citizenship, even if that means he won't have as much access to uh, national security information and have his highway security clearance because it's important for him to maintain his Turkish citizenship, even if he's in the Senate. Uh, he and his Cantor Freedom, who is the activist who has gone hard against the CCP, but he also has gone hard against Erdogan, who is the dictator of Turkey, has said that he believes that Oz actually is working for Erdogan. So uh, Erdogan is one of the, I think, scariest figures on the planet. So I'm not saying Enes Kanter knows for sure. I'm just saying that's an interesting thought that that would be the case. Uh, Dr. Oz has repeatedly attacked the pro-life movement, and he's a uh, says he supports abortion, supports, supports Roe versus Wade in the past. Now, he's flip-flopping some of the stuff and saying that these are the positions that we know of. Uh, he pushed amnesty for legal aliens as recently as 2018. Uh, he's pushed gun control on numerous occasions. He's pro-red flag laws, or at least has been recently. And he has these columns that he has his name on that are pro-gun control, though now he says he didn't write those columns. So he's made numerous pro-China statements over the years, and he actually co-authored a book touting all these controversial approaches to medicine with a CCP-backed academic. This is what I put together. This is, this is my five-minute version of stuff I put together on Oz. This is not stuff I worked on all, all weekend. This is a getting the show together today. These are just thinking, well, what are a few things I could remind the audience of that Dr. Oz has done? Literally going to forgo his clearances because to retain Turkish citizenship. Pro-China stuff, anti-gun stuff. He actually criticized Trump's China travel ban saying they don't work well. Though didn't like the COVID travel ban idea also. That's where he's at. So Trump comes out at a rally over the weekend and says he is full endorsement of Dr. Ross. So here are my questions. First of all, do you see what's going on and do you accept it? Second of all, does this change your opinion of certain things? Are there any dots that this connects with you? Because I think it is seen like online. And online is a small sample size I talk about, smaller than people think of uh, where people's heads are at. That thought this was a surprising thing and it calls into question some judgment that Donald Trump has. I don't know if it does or not for you. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you totally get this. Maybe it's a race without a clear great candidate and he's just going with his buddies, uh, which is, that's his right. He can do that. So no, did your opinion change or did you see something that maybe made you think a little differently or made you think maybe one day you could think differently about how things are going on, going down. I uh, grabbed one clip of Oz in a special that he had on transgender youths. Let's play cut three, go. Transgender, transgender. It describes people whose sex on the outside doesn't match who they are on the inside. Now imagine your child is transgender. What would you do? Our lives as parents are first defined by the words, it's a girl or it's a boy. Could you make a decision to let your child live as the other sex even alter their body? It's an area of intense debate. Today you'll meet families coping with this astonishing reality. What does it mean to be a boy? What does it mean to be a girl? Those two simple questions are infinitely complex and gut-wrenching for parents of children who are born transgender. Eight year 
know Josie was born Joseph. Physically, she's a boy. But from the time she could talk, Josie knew she was a girl. Her sex on the outside didn't match how she felt on the inside. And that's how every transgender child feels. Children like Josie may start showing signs of transgender as early as two or three. This extraordinary condition is not as rare as you might think. It's estimated that 3 million Americans believe they were born the wrong sex. Transgender shakes up all of our ideas about what makes us male or female. Does gender come from our anatomy or from our thoughts and feelings? While science looks for answers, what are parents of transgender children to do? So there's Dr. Oz. That's what his take is on trans. The issue that has ignited the right, the fact that our children are being groomed by a cult of the LGBTQ plus IA ampersand pregnant man emoji to be sexualized at a super young age. He's out there, a doctor, flat out saying that you can be an eight-year-old and you can be born with a penis, but be a girl. There's no equivocation there. That's just a flat out endorsement of that stuff. So why is this person a Republican? Why should this person be in the US, U.S. Senate? And why should he get endorsements from anyone? I would like to know that from this audience. I would like this audience to weigh in, try to explain what's going on. So this is a, a Donald Trump's man in Pennsylvania. Eight-year-old born with penis is actually a girl. What is going on? All right, in the meantime... Some other big things in the news. Elon Musk has decided not to join the Twitter board. In the meantime, more people are getting canceled. Um, Jack Posobiec, po uh, a popular tweeter who's been on the show a number of times, was suspended temporarily, I think, on Twitter. Twitter banned Bill Clinton rape accuser Juanita Broderick, who's been on the show, of course, over and over again, um, and is someone who's a great warrior for conservative causes now. And I think credibly accused Bill Clinton of rape, the most credible, I think, of any of the those who have used the R word with the former president. So uh, it, she's gone. Not to mention, of course, Charlie Kirk, Babylon B, Tucker Carlson. They're all gone. And now Musk says he's not going to join the board. How about that one? He, he, is, do you think that he'll be able to be a heroic warrior for free speech or is it some sort of publicity stunt like always? Hey, it's a win win for me. I've been saying to you guys that uh, Musk is not uh, some sort of conservative guy or free speech guy. So if I'm wrong, then the world gets a little more free. And if I'm right, then, you know, you guys know to trust me even a little bit more. So a total win-win for me. But I, I would like freedom to prevail on the Internet. And if Musk can help, that would be terrific. But it seems like things are going backwards since he bought all those Twitter shares. And now that he's not joining the board, I'm wondering what that's about. So it seemed like almost a victory lap type statement by Gulag Parag, the CEO, Parag Agrawal, who says that um, that that the he's excited to collaborate and he loves hearing from his shareholders, all of his shareholders. And Musk is the biggest one now, but uh, it won't be on the board. Interesting. Disappointing. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe exactly to be expected. Uh, a story that was red hot over the weekend was New Jersey having a model curriculum with gender identity lessons for first and second graders. Do you find this appropriate? Do you find it appropriate? I'll tell you who does, Dr. Ross, Republican Senate candidate in Pennsylvania. He does. He's good with it. You could tell he did a whole special on it for eight-year-olds. So first and second graders. Oh, wait, eight, is eight the third grade? So maybe I'm, no, eight second grade. Eight second grade. So first and second graders now are going to be taught uh, gender identity in New Jersey. This is going to be standard. 
And it's not the only state that's like this. There's other states that are doing the exact same program. And this is why the allegedly don't say gay bill, which has nothing to do with saying gay, took hold in uh, Florida is because of this. And we also hit something similar in Maryland. Maryland's teaching kindergartners sexuality and gender ideology. It's time to start paying closer attention to what's going on in the schools. And this is what happened after COVID, after the coronavirus. All these parents came in and the parents were watching over their kids' shoulders as their kids were being indoctrinated into the trans cult. And when they weren't learning reading, writing, arithmetic, they were learning wokeism, critical race theory, and this trans stuff. And so a lot of them started fighting back. But so what are the moves that can be made if you're on the left and you like this stuff? Uh, the number one move they go for is doubling down. And that's what we're seeing. So in blue areas, you're seeing codified into the curriculum trans ideology for five, six, seven, eight-year-olds. In a total full-fledged meltdown, if anyone tries to take a stand against it, like in Florida with Governor DeSantis with his quote-unquote don't say gay bill, which is nothing to do with saying gay or not. So it's a big fight in our hands. And we need to think very carefully about who we're sending to represent us in the government to make sure that they understand that this is toxic and it's addictive. It's become cultural. Not to say that there shouldn't be an ounce of sympathy for the uh, one in however many people who actually do have these issues. They, do, they need a lot of psychological help. But to put this in the curriculum for everyone is obviously is based on an agenda. It is not based on any sort of science that we can determine. Speaking of science, Dr. Fauci predicts an uptick in the coronavirus and is floating indoor mask mandates. Who didn't know that? Um, if you look at China, which has been trying to work Fauci with insane lockdowns, um, the Shanghai, 26 million people locked down, government enforcing it. it, horrific stories coming out of China in terms of their lockdowns there. Remember when Fareed Zakaria on CNN over a year ago declared that China had beaten the coronavirus? Not a joke, as Big Joey would say. So apparently they haven't. But the Shanghai coronavirus is causing food shortages, even for the rich. By the way, Canada is floating a two-year ban on foreigners buying real estate in order to take on China, which is buying up big desirable portions of Canada's real estate, which is interesting. So this is, it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing that's happening out there because not only is it scary for the people of Shanghai and the people of China, but it's also scary because it is designed to work the West. It's designed to get the Western media to overreact to coronavirus as we did in the past, which has caused a lot of tension, if you might recall, within our country. The lockdowns are preventing Chinese farmers from planting corn, by the way. They've announced expectations that family separation policies are going to continue where they're actually separating people over the virus. Again, I'm old enough to remember when the left cared about such things. Not right now, apparently. Apparently not something that's front and center in the eyes of Democrats. Uh, who have a lot of work to do right now because they're trying to protect Joe Biden, whose polls had new new low. And a new low because of Bidenflation in particular, though I think a few other things are getting worse. Inflation is now more important to people than the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate's low on the few positives that Biden can point out, though it's actually arguably too low because it is adding to the inflation, as we've explained. Part of what the, the inflation spiral that we're in 
is there's so many jobs available that people feel confident they can demand a raise. If they don't get a raise, they can go find another job. No doubt the job will pay more than their current job. Uh, thus, the employers will have to pass on the cost to consumers, thus inflation. And it's very hard to slow that stuff down once you get into that mode. And by the way, as I've said previously in the show, on a personal level, if you're inclined to go get yourself a raise, now might be a good time. But it does not help in terms of slowing down the inflation. So uh, anyway, the, the his approval is down. I don't know this trans stuff is helping, the Democrats embracing of this in a major way. I think that the border is another issue. 20, 226 migrants apprehended at a single border crossing site in 24 hours. We have a bright part over the weekend. In the Rio Grande Valley sector, the Border Patrol told us that they caught 226 migrants at one single crossing point in a 24-hour period, part of a record number of migrants crossing the southwest border right now. So they're saying there we've got records. And the footage is just horrible. I mean, it's just so many people all flooding in. And what's Alejandro Mayorkas, Biden's chosen man to head up our border security? What is he saying? Equity is the core founding principle of the U.S. Equity, not equality, equity, which is this woke phrase that's replaced equality now, which is about we all have a stake in something or other. Achieving equity, which is really the core founding principle of our country. I, I don't know. Are there any historical documents? Does anyone fact check this stuff? Is there a single historical document where the, from our founders where the word equity was used? Maybe there is one. I'd love to have it handy so I can see the context. I'd like to examine it. We didn't even focus on equality relative to other countries. France was egalité, fraternité, liberté, right? Maybe I have that backwards, but they have egalité. They have, they have egalitarianism. That's equality. We have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's not, not equity. Equity, inclusion, and diversity are the principles of the United States. No, it's the principles of your woke uh, uh, high school that you overpay and send your kids to. Jury declared that two men are not guilty in the Governor Whitmer kidnapping plot that uh, people were obsessed with. I think this was 2020. Give you a heads up that um, not guilty verdict there. Another one we've unpacked at Breitbart. I won't dwell on it too much in the opening because I do want to get your calls here in a second. But Biden falsely blamed Trump in 2020 for a plot to um, kidnap Governor Whitmer, which saw no convictions, two acquitted, and two hung jury on two of them. So keep you posted on that. But the FBI announced at the time in October 2020 when the charges were announced, so right before the election. Crucial point, Biden suggested the defendants were white supremacists and it was Trump's fault. Think he's going to take it back? Very divisive man. He ran on unity, and he's turned into the most divisive president imaginable. He's complained about vile Republican questions and verbal abuse of Kentonji Brown Jackson. Now, even if you, of course, your mind goes to Brett Kavanaugh, the verbal abuse and vile questions. They literally framed him as a rapist based on no evidence, and they got a fraudulent woman uh, due to the gumption she worked up from a couple of friends to fly across country to smear him. Christine Blasey Ford, who then went on to become one of Time Magazine's 100 uh, most influential people in the world. Uh, not only did they do that, uh, Joe Biden led the high-tech lynching of Clarence Thomas with Teddy Kennedy. Led it. He was in charge. Now he's upset with vile questioning. Let's go to the phones. Michael in Louisiana, line one. Michael, good morning. Good morning, Alex. I, Hi. The, the, the Trump endorsement of Dr. Oz... I think this is going to be another situation where we find out that Dr. R is, is far more conservative than his public persona. 
when when Trump ran in 2016, the big knock uh, from the establishment Republicans was, well, you know, he's an entertainment guy. He's a Hollywood guy. He's not really that conservative. And I think in the four years, Trump proved he was a conservative. He was way different in the White House than he was on television, and that surprised a lot of people on both sides of the aisle. They're friends with Dr. Oz. They know Dr. Oz personally. I think this may be a situation where it's the same thing, that Dr. Oz is far more conservative than what he portrays on television. Um, I hope you're right on this in the event that he wins, but what what gives you that impression uh, other than that you hope and wish it's the case? I think Trump learned his lesson from four years in the White House because a lot of his problems evolved out of trusting people that he thought were part of the, you know, the part of the anti-rhino establishment of the Republican Party. And when push came to shove, they all fell in line behind the rhinos, Bill Barr being, you know, culprit number one. And, you know, he's trying to get away from people in D.C. and get more people actually, you know, from the areas to represent the areas, you know. That Trump endorsement is solid gold in a lot of places. You ask for ride-or-die Trump people, I'm a ride-or-die Trumper. I, yeah, I, I believed in Sure, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. no I, can, can, I believed can, can, in Donald can. Trump day one. From the, when he came down that escalator, I said, that's the guy that I want to be president. Because I saw him for, for not the emperor's clothes he wore, but you know, the pauper hat he had on, that he was really going to try and do something to expose, if anything, the sheer corruption of our top government positions. And he did, and they beat him mercilessly for it. And he learned his lesson that if he runs in 2024 and wins, there is going to be a cleaning out of D.C. that this country has never experienced before sure sure but in a a nutshell your your take is if trump endorses him that's that you're confident despite all the litany of things that i ran through with the china connections and the criticizing trump on travel bans and the amnesty and the red flag log support the gun control support and the abortion support and the trans agenda support all that doesn't matter to you because trump said He's good. If and he's good, then you're good. Dr. Oz is on television. And if you don't say the right things, you're not going to be on television. The inter, you know, the media in this country is fierce. And if you do not present the right argument, they will run you out in a heartbeat, no matter how good yeah. your ratings are. Well, yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting, Michael. One thing Michael did say before I throw it to a break. Um, that he said that he's going around the country and finding people who get it. That's another interesting thing I didn't mention because we're in kind of a carpetbagger area uh, era where you know Mitt Romney is senator from Utah and Hillary Clinton is senator from New York just because basically a seat opened up and they went and grabbed it. Um, but Oz is a longtime New Jersey resident also. And I know he's got some Pennsylvania connections. And I, I know I don't think that's necessarily the greatest knock on him, but 
it is something. Like, he's not really a Pennsylvania guy either. It's a New Jersey guy. First guest today, London Bureau Chief Oliver Lane, who's a font of information on all things Europe. And I called him to talk about the French presidential election. The first ballot was over the weekend. The runoff is in two weeks. And he gives us the details. Let's take a listen. Oliver, a couple of topics for you today. The first one that I want to run by you and then I want to get to the France election is that a fuel shortages in Britain, a lot of tabloid uh, photos that I'm seeing are pretty unbelievable. Miles and miles and miles um, uh, of driving necessary to get to a place with fuel, apparently. W- what's going on here? Why is this happening? And where is the outrage being directed? Well, there's a, a sort of a long-term reason for this, and then obviously a, a more obvious short-term one. The long-term is obviously decades of uh, government mismanagement of fuel infrastructure um, and the difficulty we have uh, bringing oil into the UK to be refined, especially at a time like this. And this is the short term uh, that uh, the European Union cracking down and the UK, of course, cracking down on uh, Russian fuel products means what's left, what's made elsewhere, uh, rises in prices, there's shortages. So you know, what you bring into the UK, you can then refine and turn into fuel products and one of the issues the, the British government has had is it is so keen, it is so, it is, it is so mad keen on net zero, on the green great reset, and a lot of that is already in play. And a part of that is the uh, British government has refused to issue new drilling uh, licenses for North Sea oil, and that's been going on for some years. And even as we're rolling into this basically foreseeable crisis with fuel, uh, the government has refused to allow new hydrocarbons to be brought out of the ground, either in the form of oil or gas from the North Sea, or even fracking uh, from the north of England. Um, that was is essentially banned by the UK government. We can't do that in this country. And this all adds up together to create what we have now, which is uh, spiraling prices. And I've I've seen uh, closed petrol stations, gas stations, as you call them, over the past few days, simply because there is no fuel. Um, we've seen this before, and we'll see it again. You asked, interestingly, where's the outrage being um, directed? And, uh, well, from the left, you get a lot of outrage uh, at uh, profiteering oil companies. And I know you have the same uh, in the U.S., this misdirected rage at these companies, because uh, apparently they're profiteering, yes. because their prices are shortages, uh, but surprisingly little outrage being directed to the government, who, as I say, in the in the long term, rather than the short term Russian invasion issue, uh, are the authors of this misery. Uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I thought. So is, is anyone outraged uh, at the sort of lack of preparation for this or people just accept it as Putin bad guy and then you, you just move on? Well, that that's exactly it. Putin bad guy. There's a war in Ukraine. Therefore, that's the issue. And it's not true at all. Um, the government can, if it were, if it wished to, do uh, things like create strategic reserves, have more um, more bunkering capability, uh, and to release more oil from the natural resources that we have. 
Um, now, in their, to their credit, the, uh, the British government has finally, after months and months of talking about it last week, released the new energy strategy for the country. Uh, and in that, they have said that they are going to uh, open, I think it was eight new nuclear power plants uh, for a country the size of the UK. That's quite a considerable move. And they're going to be releasing new licenses for uh, North Sea drilling. So something is happening. But, you know, Alex, you know, as, as well as I do, these are very long term solutions. It takes years to bring nuclear power plants uh, right, online. Um, it's going to take years to get this new drilling underway in the North Sea. So you know, these are solutions for the mid-2020s, the late-2020s, not today. Uh, so let's turn to France, where there's going to be a runoff between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. Uh, give us the breakdown of how the vote went and what we can look forward to in a runoff. And is there any chance, that's the big question, Le Pen could actually win? Okay, so top three points. First of all, it was a very interesting vote yesterday. Lots of historic uh, carve-outs that I can talk about. Second of all, what are we going to see in two weeks' time, um, that's two Sundays from now, uh, is a runoff between Emmanuel Macron and uh, Marine Le Pen, all other candidates having been eliminated at this stage in this two-stage runoff. And finally, does Le Pen have a chance? Well, yeah, kind of. Um, so what we saw yesterday wow. uh, was... Uh, was was Le Pen and Macron both increasing their vote shares over last time, uh, basically the expense of all other parties. Um, that in fact, Le Pen uh, yesterday got the best or best yes best ever result for her party uh, in modern French history, um, which is you know very impressive. It wasn't enough to poll first, but it was enough to poll second, and that's all she needed at this stage. So what happens now is both candidates. Um, Le Pen from the populist right and Macron from the globalist left uh, now go back to the French people and try to cobble together an ad hoc coalition for themselves, uh, grabbing the voters from all the other candidates. And I think there was something like 16 candidates standing for president, a lot of people. And they've got to get all those different constituencies to stand behind them. And some of this has been happening already. So really good example here about uh, Le Pen. Um, afterwards, uh, Eric Zemmour, uh, who was the sort of new challenger, um, as the French mainstream media has it, uh, from the far right? Um, you know, he's certainly a, a pretty, a pretty spicy, shall we say, um, populist um, right winger from from France. He's a he's a political pundit. He's a very well known author in France, and he decided to try his hand. Actually, he performed a lot lot less well than he hoped. He got seven and a half percent. But right off the bat this morning, uh, he said to his followers. You know, I don't want any ambiguity. You should go and vote for Le Pen next time. So that's a block of voters. If they actually wow. want to go to the polls, and that's a different matter. That's a whole, a whole different matter we can talk about later. If those voters bother, bother to vote, that's seven more percent. That, that group of people that go to Le Pen. On the other hand, you have um, uh, Veras, I think her name is, who is the leader of the basically establishment conservative party um, in France. They're kind of like the Republicans. Um, and she was absolutely destroyed last night bearing in mind this is a party that used to have presidents like um like Chirac and like sure. uh, de Gaulle you know, these giants of French uh, politics she got five percent absolutely terrible a really really bad result um but you know rather than supporting Le Pen she is telling her center-right conservatives you should support the globalist left. You should support Macron to keep Le Pen out of office. So that's how the that's how the money's falling now. You, you see these new um, these new dynamics and what people really think coming out. So, so what do you think the, the you handicap the race right now? What do you think is the percentage wise? Where are you betting? 
Well, look, in the whole of French modern political history, there have only been two two-term presidents. Can Macron pull that off? He's had a really difficult first term. That counts against him. Le Pen is performing the best she ever has. This election cycle has been really good for her. And just because she came second in the first round doesn't mean it won't work out of the second. Honestly, is it- the chance... My money is on the pe- my money is on a two-term Macron, but I think it'll be really damn close. always a treat when David Mamet joins the show, one of the deepest thinkers of our time, someone who has so much facts and wisdom and knowledge of history and religion and a, a body of accomplishments and of art that is pretty much unrivaled in the conservative space. One of our true artists who has had a career for half a century. Pretty amazing. It's a good catch up. You'll enjoy it. And it's pretty funny too. take a listen. Legendary playwright and author David Mamet is on the line with me. His new book out, Recessional, The Death of Free Speech and the Cost of a Free Lunch. And it's uh, very high up the charts, so feel free to pick it up. I encourage you to. I read it almost in one sitting. It was a pretty breezy read because David writes so incredibly well. But those of you who have read any of his plays or his works in the past, I think know that to be true. He's perhaps best known for Glen Gary, Glenn Ross, and The Verdict, and Wag the Dog, and The Untouchables, but uh, incredibly prolific playwright, author, uh, and screenwriter. Uh, David, it's always great to have you back on the show, and I think you've done something that's pretty interesting. You've actually put some poetry around these horrible last couple of years that we've had uh, due to the coronavirus, and I guess this was sort of your reflections and your way of dealing with the collective insanity that you watched from your, your country and your fellow countrymen. Well, yeah, that's right, because what the playwright does is actually not a, a, an act of creation so much as an act of analysis. That is to say, I have these disparate ideas in my mind. How do we order them such that they have a a, a direct progression? How do we start from the fact that Othello is the most famous general in um, Venice, but he's disliked or distrusted because he's a Moor, he's he's dark-skinned? How do we proceed from there to where he ends up strangling his, his wife? So he strangles his wife, and it looks like a good idea to him. So how do we get from A to B? So I look at the, the, the culture falling apart and people doing things that look like a good idea to them, the, the outcome of which is predictably disastrous. And I say, I say well, let me see if I can analyze this. That's, so that's what I try to do in the book. Uh, and I think you do it quite well. I think there's a lot of things that I think in, in our audience in particular, they'll have heard similar ideas, but never phrase the way with the clarity that you phrase them with. And, and that is exactly in, in, in the notes here from your publisher. That's exactly what the suggestion is, that the essays were written during a terrible year to, to achieve clarity. Uh, when did you decide this needed to be the goal and not necessarily to fight back or to, I, I, th- I think that's the thing, is all of us want to fight back in this pandemic, but some there was a point where I think a lot of us became resigned to certain things, and we just kind of wanted to figure out why and how we got here. Well, Winston Churchill stood alone against Hitler. He, he was, uh, the, the period between the wars in, in England was a period of legitimate uh, retrenchment and pacifism. They didn't want to go to war again. And he looked around and said, "Wait a second, we're going to have to we're going to have to fight the Germans again." And 
he was out of office and derided as an idiot and an alcoholic and a fool and a warmonger. But there was only one person who took him seriously, and that was Hitler. Hitler, throughout the 30s, singled out this out-of-office crazy drunk because he knew he was going to have to fight him. So that's an example of great courage on the part of Churchill who never gave up, never gave up. And so all of us fantasize about doing heroic things. That's what comic books are about, and that's what all television is about, the movies are about. But real heroism is standing up, as did, for example, Dr. King, and as did Theodore Herzl in the, in the creation of the State of Israel, and did, as did Churchill, and said, I know you all think this is impossible. All I can do is tell the truth as I see it, and the rest is going to be with the gods. So this brings up a one of the more interesting essays in it, where you talk about a story, a, a war story from, I think it was the Revolutionary War, that it was probably false, but it was repeated throughout generations, and people even claimed to have read texts about it. Which one was this one? And contextualize it in the fake news era uh, that we're in now, because fake news is not a new thing. I mean, there's we do, do a lot of myth-making, which you write about in great detail, and th this is important in a way, but sometimes it gets out of control as well. Did you think of that when you were writing that essay? Well, uh, I thought about it because of a guy called William Lloyd. He was the last guy at, uh, executed as a uh, traitor in Great Britain. He was executed yeah. in 1946. And she was born in America to British parents and came right, was raised in England as a, from infancy. And then when, before the war broke out, before America had gotten to the war in 1939, he went to Germany and became known as a guy called Lord Haw Haw. And he broadcast anti-British propaganda throughout the war under the name of Lord Haw Haw. And it was obviously a traitor. And after the war, he was arrested and taken back to England to stand trial. He says, wait a second, you can't try me. I'm not a British citizen. My, uh, my parents were British, but I was born in the United States. And I came over here, A. And B, I went to Germany when America, my country of my birth, was not at war. So you can't try me as a uh, British citizen. And they said, nice try. But you accepted the protection of the crown. You were subject to the crown's laws. And they killed him. They, they hung him and good riddance, the last person executed for treason in Great Britain. So Edward Everett Hale, who wrote this wonderful story in, 18, in the 1880s, was a direct descendant of Nathan Hale, who was a, uh, a spy for George Washington. And before they uh, executed him, they said, you have any last words? He said, I, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. So the essay ends with him stating his last words on earth were his regrets that he couldn't better serve his country. And the other guy, Lord Haw Haw, his last words were, were not recorded. So I started mulling all of this stuff around in my overactive brain, and I decided to write, write an essay about two hangings and what it means to uh, love your country. This is one thing that I think is another theme throughout the book is your love and your patriotism for the United States comes through very clearly, but I think you're coming to peace with the fact that it does seem like we're uh, receding from our eras of excellence to something that's so much more mediocre at a minimum. And I, I want to talk about this in the context of your career and what's emphasized now in society because it just seems like uh, I'm in my mid-30s now. When I grew up, there was still at least some emphasis on excellence. And then now it just seems like we're emphasizing the the not excellent. We're emphasizing, and it's not just about wokeness. We're not demanding excellence 
in anything. And you write about the uh, also your personal experience that the best thing you can have in terms of achieving success is not a, a handout, it's to have talent. That's the number one thing. Uh, are we even looking for excellence anymore? It appears like it's over. Well, we're looking for excellence in various places. And the other thing is, there's no such thing as being excellent and being a part of a mob. So if you're part of a mob, it means I, uh, I give up my individuality. I get all my meaning from the mob, from what, whatever it is, my sexual identity, my racial identity, my political identity. That's much more important to me. That is the only thing that's important rather than individual identity. And where the two conflict, I'm going to choose the group. So in that there's only one way that you can uh, achieve excellence in the mob, and that's by being more, more outrageous than, than everybody around you. So that's why the mob grows in, uh, in fury, because they keep pushing each other in, in search of status. They keep pushing and power. They keep pushing each other farther and farther and farther to the left, because there's no such thing as individual excellence, and, 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 and there's no such thing as courage, because... It takes a certain amount of courage in all ports. Listen, if somebody's going broke in their business, it takes a great deal of courage to say, I think I can hang on. I'm going to sell my car and, and buy the next month's rent. That takes a great deal of courage. And people in the middle class who have to support themselves have to make courageous decisions all the time. They may not consider it that way, but that's what they do. But people who are under government subvention, which is to say children of the state, and people who've got enough money that they don't care anymore, don't have to make those decisions. So they don't understand the, if I may, the thrill of actually being courageous, which means I may win or I may lose, but I got to put all my money on this square here. And so that, that's what's going away, but it's not going away from uh, the right. It's not going away from the conservatives because we have no choice. Yeah, that is true. And you write about how liberalism has put us on this path towards chaos and anarchy. And I, I think we're there. And I think the thing that's emblematic, um, at which you refer in, in multiple essays, is what's happening with our uh, this gender hysteria that we're in, that you can choose your sex all of a sudden. And for some reason, people who did not buy into this for you know 60 or 70, or with Joe Biden's case, 120 years on this planet, now all of a sudden buy into it that you can uh, choose which gender or sex you are. And it, I, I believe this is part of that liberalism uh, marching us towards chaos and anarchy. And I, I feel like that's something that would resonate with you. Well, of course it is. And it's really the last step. Uh, and I, I, I compare it to the myth of Rumpelstiltskin, you know, this is poor girl, and she marries the king because he says, I love you, I'm going to take care of you, but he abuses her, he sticks her into a, a attic and says, I need you to spin flax into gold, you're going to stay here until you can spin flax into gold. She can't do that. All of a sudden, this little guy shows up, he's an elf, he says, I'll spin flax into gold for you. Gosh, thank you, she says. So she, he spins flax into gold, he spins flax into gold. She says, how can I repay you? He says, I want your firstborn son. So this is where she hits bottom. She says, I just married the same guy twice, right? Like people do in abusive relationships many times. You know, you marry one wife beater, odds are you're going to marry another, right? Because you've you got to figure things out. So a lot of us make the same mistake twice and often, but at some point we have to hit bottom if we're going to change. That's what uh, uh, the 12-step programs are all about, right? If you're addicted you're not going to change until it's either change or die, and you get that choice, and you say, "Okay, I'm terrified, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to choose change," and it feels to me like death. 
but that's what I'm going to choose. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. I'm going to stop voting for Democrats, whatever. So liberals and Democrats who, for whatever reason, profit from group think or are so insulated that they don't have to, uh, they don't have to um, confront it and understand uh, being a Democrat and being a liberal as uh, like driving a Tesla, which it's very closely related. You know, it's somehow a badge of something or other. But now when the state comes out and says, guess what? In addition to paying huge amounts in taxes and uh, giving up your, um, your, your gasoline and uh, not defending the state of Israel and um, giving all of this uh, money to Iran for a nuclear program, I want your kids too. I want you to give them to me from kindergarten. I'm going to raise. You're not going to raise them. I'm going to raise them. I'm going to teach them uh, if they're white that they're um, uh, racially deficient, and I'm going to teach them that guess what? You might be the wrong sex. And in fact, if you say no, I'm going to I'm going to have my friends, the government, sit the FBI on you and call you domestic terrorists. Well, I think that that's what's going to really swamp the Democrats in the midterm elections is a lot of people of whatever pers- political persuasion they call themselves are going to say, you can't have my kids. Yeah. Uh, one thing to, to connect some of these themes, and again, the book is Recessional. It's out now. The author, David Mamet, The Death of Free Speech and the Cost of a Free Lunch. Uh, I come from L.A. and I have a theater family, and uh, we always were taught, even though we were conservative, we were taught the, uh, to appreciate the arts, and it just seems like it does. it is an act of bravery to be a true artist, but now now what's being rewarded is people who hit a certain ideology. It's not people who have the most talent and have spent uh, decades mastering that talent. It is the people who are simply hitting ideological boxes. And this is the death of art. And we're doing this in a self-inflicted way because even the would-be artists seem to be trying to conform uh, to this new woke standard that we're in. And I find this deeply troubling, but maybe unavoidable at this point. As someone who has witnessed this from the inside, this clearly changing phenomenon, where now ideology is so Trump aesthetics, is there any turning back? Do you see any pockets of hope? Well, sure. The problem is uh, the situation's always who controls the high ground whether that's in a military situation or it's in a cultural civil situation, the high ground here being the means of distribution. So the, the means of distribution are largely, almost completely controlled by the left. And if someone wants to work for and within those means of distribution, they have to toe the co- company line or else get out or else shut up. And this is not anything new in, in human history. You know, it's what Jews have been doing for 2,000 years up until the formation of the state of Israel. And to their shame, many not realizing that we're free, do it still today. It's what gays had to do uh, uh, throughout uh, American history, throughout, I guess throughout portions of Western history, up until uh, Stonewall. When they say, no, nope, you know what, I'm going to be free. I don't know what it's going to cost me, but I'm tired of hiding. So the people who want to work as an employee of big business and call it art or call it entertainment, they can delude themselves. They're missing out on a great life, which is to be independent. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be successful. It may mean that they're unsuccessful. It may mean that they're they're canceled or that their life is difficult. 
but what they'll be is free. It's becoming increasingly obvious that another thing that's preventing people from living a great life is uh, the, the internet. And in a lot of ways, I, I make my living on the internet, and I'm, I guess I'm happy it's here, but it does seem like it's become wildly addictive, and it, people are not using it uh, for the, it's not a good use of time. Uh, one thing that's really enjoyable in the book, and, and just about all your nonfiction work, is there's lots of arcana in it. We get your take on uh, on movies, we get your take on music, we get your take on, on uh, literature, we get your take on who influenced you and inspires you, what are your favorite plays, which ones you think inarguably are the masterpieces. And these are little asides that come from a lifetime of thinking of deeply about these these topics. Uh, people my age and younger are not going to have any of this. We're not going to have, you know, seen Showboat on Broadway. It's, it's never going to happen. So is the, we're not going to have a read enough of Trollope to be able to write about it. Maybe we'll read one, maybe. And I think that this is a huge loss and almost never discussed in our modern times. Well, look, there's no question that we're on the brink of, and perhaps a little bit past the brink of entering on a new dark age. But during the dark ages, we had wonderful people preserving and improving that which we now enjoy as Western culture. And some of them were the, were the, were the Catholic Church, and some of them uh, were the Jews in the diaspora who lived and died to bring to us uh, the benefits of uh, Western civilization, which basically is to say of religion. You write about religion quite a bit in, in, in numerous essays. And do you find that as you've gotten older and wiser, presumably, does it, has it drawn you closer to the scriptures or do you feel like you are um, uh, find more flaws or holes in them? Well, I don't find any flaws or holes in them. I mean, I think that there's things that I don't understand, and that's why we have the Talmud, right? That's why we have responsible literature and, and thousands of years of commentary on, on this wonderful, bizarre, disturbing document that we Jews call the Torah. So, of course, I've gotten closer to it as I get older. Because you get older, you say, wait a second, I ain't going to be here forever. Why was I here in the first place? What have I done? What am I going to do with my remaining time? And you begin to look at the things that puzzle you, at least I do. And you say, I, I don't get it. I don't understand why I'm not uh, in prison or, or, or living under a bridge. I don't understand why I was graced with having the you know, most wonderful wife anyone ever had and some bearable children. And I had yeah. all of this fun and everything. And uh, I, I don't get it. So you say, well, what is, what is equality? What, what is the purpose of wealth? How do, how do economics work? So, which is a great use of literature because uh, I never learned how to play golf. <laughs> Did you find yourself returning to the Bible, returning to Scripture more often during the pandemic? Absolutely. I read it every day, and I, I still do because I say, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Let me, let me look again. And so what you find in Scripture is all of human nature is there. It's hiding sometimes, but it's myths about human nature, or it's human nature expressed in poetic form. But so is a joke. That's what a joke is. It's human nature expressed in a poetic form that so releases us that we laugh. So here's an act of courage, right? Here's right. Chris Rock. He's doing the Oscars, and Will Smith goes up and punches him in the face, right? Chris Rock, his first reaction is to say, you saw it, folks. That's the... Uh, most memorable um, moment in live television. And then the next day he comes back with an even better line and he says he's glad he didn't insult Alec Baldwin's wife. So here's a guy <laughs> who stands up and he brings humor 
to a terrible situation. You know, like Dave Chappelle does the same thing. They bring humor to it. And so that connects us because you can't take back a laugh. No, you can't. And it, it does feel like, and you write about this quite a bit, one thing that's lamentable is we used to turn to places like SNL for such humor, but now they're reduced to things like insulting Ben Carson just for being Ben Carson. And and I do think that this is, again, part of where the left and, and liberalism is destroying things. And I'm hoping that some alternatives start emerging. Maybe your book can propel some people who are artists and do reject some of these things to maybe... Uh, take strides in that direction. But one thing that's tougher now is that with their current education system, there's not a lot of uh, education going on in our schooling. And you write that the left is opposed to education. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that in order for the left, which is, you know, there are liberals, there are, very, very, there are many goodwill liberals, and there's many good liberal ideas, but the left is opposed to the discussion of the ideas. And it comes out of Marxism, that Black Lives Matter is perfectly open about that. And Marxism is devoted to the destruction of Western culture. That's what it wants. So the way, the best way to, dis- to destroy Western culture is to get the kids out of the house, get them stuck into school and indoctrinate them. So education is from the Latin educare, means to draw out of, to draw out of darkness. That's what education is supposed to be. It's very, very different than indoctrination. The way you draw people out of darkness is you give them the tools to consider, you give them the tools to think. You, you teach them mathematics, and you teach them history, and you teach them perhaps uh, logic, and you teach them, you expose them to the great works of the past so that they feel empowered to think and express their own opinions because everybody's got a different opinion. That's the way God made us, and that's the United States is based on the idea that everyone has a different opinion, and we're going to have some rules for debate. And that's all the Constitution is, it's rules for debate. When you take that aside, it's not education. When you teach that this is a dreadful country and that uh, logical thinking is cheating and you're going to be indicted for it, you're not educating anybody, you're indoctrinating them. Uh, another fascinating concept that you introduced I thought was pretty brilliant is that you wrote that Trump is the leader of the left. And of course that's true, but how did you come to this and describe what you mean exactly by it? Here's the thing. When you write uh, dramas, you have to determine what the form is. Sometimes you get an idea, or at least I do, and you say, geez, I don't know what it is. Is it a comedy or is it a farce? If it's a comedy, is it a high comedy of manners or is it a low comedy of slapstick? Is it a farce? Is it a drama? Is it a drama or a melodrama? What's the difference between the two? Is it a drama or a tragedy? What's the difference between the two? Is it a pageant? You have to come to understand the form because each form has requirements. The a romance must sure. end in a marriage. The comedy ends with the deus ex machina coming down and making making everybody wise about what fools they've been and restoring them more or less to the status quo ante. The, the, the tragedy ends with goodwill people destroying each other for good good reasons. So I'm looking at the left and the, 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 the cancerous growth of wokeism and the destruction which is wreaking overnight and i'm saying okay i don't have to when i'm on a plane i don't have to worry till the stewardess worries right when the stewardess worries i'm gonna start worrying okay so here i am i don't have to worry until the left comes up with two things a name and a leader right because it's not going to turn out to outright fascism until they have a name and a leader. Well, they came up with woke. That doesn't quite do it. It's on the way. But they said, no, there's got to be a leader. How can you, how can this many people be galvanized without a leader on whom to uh, heap 
uh, their devotion. I realized they did have a leader on whom to keep their devotion, but it was a devotion to murdering him, and it was uh, Donald Trump. Because if you listen to it, the left for six years, and even today, it's all Donald Trump this, Donald Trump that. What the hell? He's a human being. He's a guy. Why are we constantly, why is his name constantly in your mouth? And it's because it, it unified them. Exactly right. And the unity was unbelievable and it even propelled them to somehow figure out a way to get Joe Biden into the White House. Uh, David Mamet, again, is my guest, Pulitzer winning playwright, The Death of Free Speech and the Cost of a Free Lunch, the subtitle to his new book, Recessional, out now uh, and at, at the top of most of the charts online. David, thanks for all the time. The last one for today. Uh, you you wrote the book. It seemed like as a, a for some personal catharsis. Uh, did you achieve any of it? Do you feel better having written it, or is it uh, is it challenging to confront uh, a country that is sort of eating itself alive in so many ways? Well, it's very very gratifying because I, I put it together, and people said, "Oh my God, that was very brave." I said, "No." Really? It didn't feel brave to me. It just felt like me trying to reason my way through. But I, I, I do feel about a billion pounds lighter. And I'd like to close with the idea about the, there was this uh, the old hillbilly joke, right, from the old old days when there was, there was humor. And the hillbilly guy would come up uh, every year. He'd say, Doc, you got to come out when my wife's having a baby. Doc, you got to come out when my wife's having a baby. So one year at the right time, he doesn't come out. And, and the, the guy said, so is your wife not having a baby? The guy says, no, we found out what was causing it. <laughs> uh, the book is funny, of course, and very sharp, and uh, you will enjoy it, and it's a pleasure to read. And just little bite-sized essays, you can, it makes a good gift as well. So I can't recommend it enough. Thanks, David, and please, let's do this again. I'm very grateful for you to have me on. Thank you. Got American parts. I got American faith. That's all for today. Thanks to producers Haley and Greg, and we'll see you tomorrow.